Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking about both sides of the table, not only being an operator, a founder, but then now being an investor, too, and how he went about, you know, building both, building, scaling, financing, and also exiting. You know, we're going to be talking about that just a little bit, too. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Cam Duty. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Pumped to be here. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here, Cam. So born in Houston. I know that you were not uh, for a long time there, but but tell us, how was life growing up? It was good. I mean, you know, we m- my entire family uh, really came from Texas, um, both sides of, of my, my mom's side and dad's side uh, were, um, were, were Texan. And, uh, but I, I, yeah, I, I was there for nine months. We, we moved to East Tennessee when I was very young. My dad's uh, is he's a surgeon, um, and uh, but but really where I sort of got my entrepreneur bone is he's an inventor on the side. So he's, he's a surgeon as a day job, but he you know he'd come home every night and he'd be up until midnight, you know, working on different different patents that, that you know various patents all growing up. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in not in in Knoxville, Tennessee, is my hometown. Uh, went to Auburn. University, 2004 to 2009, took a victory lap uh, during the the financial crisis. Uh, graduated in, in the middle of the financial crisis. Nobody was hiring. It was a pretty bleak moment to be, you know, 22 years old and and uh, starting off in just a totally stagnant market. And uh, you know, my friends and I, everybody, we you just had to take whatever was, was, was open. A lot of my friends, uh, they, they decided to take a year off and kind of try to wait it out. I just had too much anxiety. I just, I had to, to do something. My brother-in-law worked at a bank in Birmingham. I, uh, my first job out of college, I was like, you know, I, I wore a full suit and I was, I was the guy that would repin your debit card in a bank branch in a mark mall parking lot. Um, total, like, you know, nine to five situation scared the absolute shit out of me. And, uh, honestly, I think that's why I I became an entrepreneur was it was, it was almost like running from the fear of, wow, the real world and the corporate environment, uh, it's pretty scary place, uh, at least for me. But what, what, what scared you from it? What scared you from it? I could just see, you know, and, and I, I I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. It's not, you know, I don't want to, ruffle any feathers there. I, I, for me personally, seeing somebody in the role that I would be in in 10 years, you know, the 32 year old, you know, that, that had the position that I would go into in like two promotions. Um, like it was almost like looking at a caged lion, like their, their, their eyes were glazed over. They, they'd forgotten the thrill of the hunt. They were sort of living for their 15 days of PTO. Um, very little ambition. Their life was sort of like plotted out for them. Um, and that was like about the scariest thing you could put in front of me as a 22 year old kid that thought that, you know, that the real world was going to be the land of opportunity and 
the ability to to have ambition would would allow you to climb through. And it was just a it was very stagnant stagnant environment. Um, and so I immediately started looking for for jobs that that had opportunity or autonomy. And so I moved into uh, a medical equipment company, startup medical equipment company, where I launched uh, hospice medical services in the state of Alabama and Tennessee. And my bosses were in, te- in Texas, and it, it gave me a little bit more autonomy. Um, but it, it was clear by the, the three years into that, that company, I was 25, uh, I, I had to, to take responsibility of my, my own financial, financial independence. You know, it was like this uh, neurotic feeling that I had of uh, I've got to do something with my life. And I have to be able to wake up every day uh, and, and live life on my own terms. And I, and I knew the, the only way to do that would be to start a company. So my, my, uh, my co-founder and I started thinking about uh, things that we could do. And we ultimately, that's how we came up with the idea for, for Bellhop. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we got lucky to have an idea with legs on the first run. And uh, we spent the next, you know, 10 years building that company. So then let's talk about like, how did that come together? You know, walk us, you know, through how the idea of it, you know, came together for Bellhop and, and how you guys went about bringing it to life. Yeah, well, the the initial idea was okay. What's the biggest problem that we that that was close enough for us to solve? And it was college kids uh, moving in, you know, moving in on on freshman, uh, move, you know, move in was a nightmare for parents. And we we realized, you know, Auburn University is twenty five thousand students. There's twelve thousand, you know, twenty twenty year old kids that are broke, you know, sitting there playing Halo two doors down from a hundred pound girl that's trying to get a futon up three flights of stairs. And so this was 2000 and, uh, let's see, 11, you know, the iPhone was, uh, just getting to the point where most everybody had them in their pockets. Uh, we, we, we'd never heard of Uber before, but the idea of like an app based workforce management platform where we could, you know, connect people with instructions for a job and then manage payments uh, through, through an app was the original idea for, for the first, the company that ended up becoming bellhop. The the first name of the business was called the dorm movers. And, uh, so we put all our money into this, uh, booth at a parent orientation session at Auburn. Um, it's like 1500 bucks. And, uh, we basically handed out business cards and said, Hey, you know, you won't have to lift a finger on, on moving day. Uh, we'll have two belt, you know, two college students waiting at the curb for you to unload your stuff out of the car and take it up to to your dorm room. And we were hoping to move, you know, three, four hundred kids, uh, or, or we were hoping to move like like twenty five, thirty kids in that that first year. Ended up having to move in, I think, four hundred and twenty kids in in uh, uh, in three days. And we had we had to go and hire eighty college students. I mean, we were walking on knocking on doors for fraternity houses and. ROTC programs, and it was just a mad dash to get it done. And uh, that's that's the beginning of what ultimately ended up becoming Bellhops, which now uh, it's the fastest growing moving company in the United States. You know, we're in 42 states now, uh, thousands of, of movers across the country, and, and, you know, we're doing local long distance corporate relocation. Um, you know, it was just a story of it started with moving college kids. And, uh, and scaled up into you know moving everybody in in 
in the country. And also a massive space. It's an $18 billion space or, or more. But, but I guess, same for the people that are listening to really get it, you know, the business model, how are you guys making money there? So, I mean, you know, we started moving college students uh, and then their parents started begging us to, to move them. You know, we didn't have any assets. We had no trucks. We had, you know, we didn't have any moving equipment. It was just, we were sourcing, you know, high judgment, high EQ labor from college campuses uh, uh, through, a, through a, a mobile interface and, and matching them with jobs that, you know, for, for people that needed to basically load or unload U-Hauls. And so we, we charged by the hour. And what ended up happening was, you know, we, we started moving, you know, thousands of college students. Their parents were like, well, I, I loved, you know, when, when Bellhops moved, you know, my daughter into, you know, into college, like, can you just move us into our U-Haul? We're moving houses. You know, we started turning down those requests like, well, no, we only move students. It's funny how, you know, the market has to slap you around until you start paying attention. Um, ultimately started taking non-student moves, loading U-Hauls, et cetera. Uh, got to the point in 2015 uh, where we were doing, you know, tens of thousands of moves across the country, just labor only. Um, and uh, we'd been, you know, asked by our customers a hundred times, like, hey, we don't want to have to pick up the U-Haul, can you guys like show up with a truck? And, uh, you know, we turned down the first hundred requests to that. And then until finally we were like, well, how hard can it be? And we set up a corporate account with, with U-Haul and, uh, and, and started booking U-Hauls or bellhops would go and pick up the, the U-Haul, they'd drive to the job, they'd do the move and then they'd take the truck back. So we were essentially scaling up a, an asset-based moving company without any assets. Um, became a top 10 customer of, of U-Haul uh, in, 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 you know, over the course of like a two and a half or three month period. Um, and uh, I think, you know, probably scared the executive team at U-Haul because they had a labor platform, you know, in the U-Haul umbrella of companies called movinghelp.com. And they were watching us go and, and scale up this full service moving company using their trucking infrastructure. And uh, so they changed corporate policy in July of 2015, uh, where we had to actually show up with a credit card. And so this was before any of the, you know, the, the preloaded card companies out there. Uh, we were booking all these these trucks, you know, just through their website. Uh, and our bellhops just had to show up with a confirmation number. Um, now we had to show up with a card. There was no way that we were going to be able to issue cards to, you know, all these bellhops all over the country. And so we had, I think, 2,500 trucks booked for the month of July, uh, and U-Haul canceled all of them. And uh, so we basically threw in a Hail Mary to Penske um, and said, listen, we need to book 2,500 of your trucks this month all over the country. Uh, a couple of days later, the Penske executive team flew into Chattanooga, and um, we ended up filling every one of those jobs with Penske trucks in that first year. And, and that was like the, uh, that was the, the, the realization of, okay, we have to really control the, the transportation stack with, with bellhops and we can't be reliant on anybody else. And so, uh, we started leasing trucks and bellhops started, you know, these are like untrained college students driving truck to, you know, 26 foot box trucks around the you know country that were 
going under bridges and taking the, the tops of the trucks off. They were wrecking the trucks. They were, you know, they were falling asleep. It was, it was just a total nightmare. Maintaining these things was, was really, it was a pain in the butt. And, uh, and so we ended up reaching out to this guy that uh, started a, a, a company in Final Mile Logistics where uh, he had 6,026-foot box trucks. He had one customer, which was Amazon, and his trucks moved from midnight to like three or four in the morning. And uh, we went to him to say, you know, how do you train people to drive trucks? How do you keep the tires on the, you know, how do you run maintenance programs? How do you, you know, all these questions we had about fleet management. And he like stopped us 10 minutes in. He was like, wait a second, why don't you just onboard my trucks and drivers as your bellhops? And then we'll just do the trucking component and your bellhops can do all the moving. And, uh, and you can turn, you know, what is a fixed cost for the rest of the industry into a variable cost and maybe that'll work. And, uh, and so we rolled it out in our, in our biggest city at the time, which was Atlanta. Uh, and it, it ended up taking every full service move that we had. And then, you know, within six months, it took over every full service move we had in the country. And, uh, you know, so here we are, you know, we have the ability to go into a new market close uh, one or two contracts for, you know, in final mile logistics to have these 26 foot box trucks and um, turn on our, our levers for, for labor demand. Um, and so within like a five or six week period, we could have the capacity of every moving com company uh, in the city combined uh, without owning any assets in the city and, and uh, without having to have real estate without having to, to, to scale up, you know, local administration or ops. Um, and that's really what the breakthrough for, for Bellhop was. was and, and that's how we spread all across the country so quickly is, you know, we could cram in the growth of a company like Two Men in a Truck. You know, it took them 50 or 60 years to do that. You know, we did it in, in a couple of years. And then also, how did you guys go about capitalizing the business as well? Uh, cap, uh, so we, we raised venture capital. Uh, so I guess go to go back to 2012, we raised our first round of venture capital, uh, from a group called Lampos group. Um, we raised uh 600 K in our, our pre-seed round. And we ended up, you know, over the, the following decade, we raised about $115 million for, uh, from, a, you know, various groups, mainly in, in SF and New York. Um, And uh, yeah, we we took the venture path. Now, in total, prior to the uh, to the transaction that you guys did on the secondary side of things, how much how much capital was raised until that point? Uh, oh, when we when we sold part of the business tw late twenty nineteen, probably eighty or ninety million. What What about the journey too of of going through the private equity? You know. Uh, transaction as well you know like how, how 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 was that like you know how was that experience like i'm sure it was pretty unbelievable and surreal yeah well i mean you know we had been through a lot of fundraisers up to, to, to that point you know in, in in a lot of ways it wasn't much different than you know our series a or series b or your or series c that you know we raised just through you know traditional venture um we we had a group that uh out of uh, Minneapolis that um, we just really loved the business. Business was, was exploding. You know, numbers were, uh, were 
really great. I mean, we really we have we had a uh, we had the market really pinched, and um, there was you know a ton of growth uh, opportunity left in the markets that we were in, and you know we were you know probably in uh, less than half the cities that we ultimately wanted to be. And, you know, it, it just, it checked a lot of the boxes and, um, I wouldn't say it was any different than, than raising, you know, any, any of our other venture rounds, uh, the exception of, of you know, it wasn't a, a new money capital injection for the business. It was, it was buying out some early investors and, and, you know, providing some liquidity for the, uh, for the founders. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how was it like to, to uh, now seeing the business from a, you know, not an operator role, but more from like a board member role? Yeah, I mean, very different. I mean, the, the crazy thing is, is, is we stepped out of the company uh, in, in late 2019, right before COVID. And so what happened, you know, that next year we were growing, you know, at the time we were growing 140%, uh, year over year on some big numbers. And all of a sudden, you know, May, March, April of 2020, everything locked down. And so we were in the middle of our supply ramp for the year, hiring bellhops. We had to totally halt that moves weren't happening, lockdowns were happening. Um, demand completely went away just because people are just like, you know, literally like sitting in place. And, uh, and then if you remember like late summer, and, and by the way, you know, the moving industry is highly seasonal. And, you know, it starts really in like April and goes until October. And uh, that's when you're going to do, you know, 60, 70% of, of your business, uh, f for the year in, in, in those months, uh, if not a little more. And, um, and so we, we essentially killed our supply ramp. Um, demand came like roaring back late summer once lockdowns had lifted. Um, but we didn't have the supply 
you know, we, we couldn't go back and, and, and hire these thousands of bellhops that, you know, that, uh, on a, on a moment's notice once, you know, the lockdown started lifting. And so by the time we started ramping some supply, the, the moving season had ended. And so 2020 was really tough. And then 2021, you know, with all the stimulus packages, basically the labor went away entirely. Nobody wanted to work. Uh, you know, hourly label, la- labor was, you know, they were just collecting checks and, you know, everybody was kind of playing the the game of, you know, living in, in the this COVID era world where nobody wanted to be around other people. And, uh, you know, so it was less that we were demand constrained and more that we were supply constrained. Because at, at the time, everybody had started moving long distance to get out of some of the cities that sort of had, you know, stricter uh, policies around lockdowns. And so the, the long distance business was like booming in 2020 and uh, 21 and, and 22, but no one was working. And so, you know, that's the, the challenge of any uh, marketplace, managed marketplace business is you're, you're always in a supplier demand mismatch. And, uh, and so we were just heavily supply constrained during 21 and 22. Um, and so as a board member, you know, trying to, you know, you're out of the day to day, right? You're not in the trenches anymore. Um, but you kind of, it, it was just, it, it was just a very surreal experience to, to watch, you know, the, the company under, you know, new leadership operate through this, this really just you know, perfect storm of, of, you know, pandemic. Um, so that was, that was very weird. And, you know, we've been, uh, executing all the way through it, uh, ever since and have have done a a really great job being able to, to, to grow every year through, uh, you know, 2020 and beyond, but it's been a real knife fight, you know, um, you know, now we're dealing with, with, you know, interest rates in the eight, nine, nine uh, you know, it's, it's, people aren't moving as much, so much more demand constrained than, 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 uh, than supply constrained right now. But, you know, it's part of it. We're, we're executing companies, uh, doing what we need to do. That's right. Now, I guess from a board member perspective, what have you learned to, you know, now being in at a strategic level, providing guidance on the execution? How, how is that, you know, as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think. M- what I'd say about a, a healthy board, we have an incredibly uh, awesome board at Bellhop and have for the last uh, eight, nine years. We have something really special. The best board meetings are not reporting sessions where the executive team shows up and goes through a big, long deck and basically just reports on the progress of the last quarter. You know, the best board meetings are strategic sessions where you get in a room and, you know, you go over a, a business update. Um, to sort of recenter everybody around, you know, what's happening in the business. But every board member should have already gotten the materials a few days prior and, you know, be familiar with what's actually happening in the business. You know, good board meetings are like sitting around a table with a bunch of really smart people um, and just going after the biggest problems, you know, where you can speak candidly in, a, in an environment where, uh you know, you get some really bright people together to to be able to to work the problem, um, and 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 that's how it should be. And I think, unfortunately, uh, 
you know, if there's weakness in, in an executive team, boards tend to bear down uh, and get more operational, which obviously, you know, puts a lot of like stress on the executive teams. It usually trickles down to the team. And, you know, generally when a board starts to get operational, things start to really break down. So as long as the executive team is, is capable of, of, of uh, you know, really commanding the business. I mean, no board wants to be operational. They just get scared when, when they don't feel like the executive team has, has control. So we, we've been in a very uh, fortunate position to, to have very highly, you know, competent executive team to, to uh, be executing through, you know, tough times. And, uh, but it's fun, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a lot of fun uh, to where you're, you're not, you're not actually in the trenches anymore and you can kind of, just uh, parachute in, every, you know, every once a month on a call and once once a quarter and, you know, in a meeting and uh, and just serve in a, in a little more, uh, you know, hands off and direct way. That's amazing. Now, when the transaction happened, you guys, um, you know, took some time off. So during that time off, you know, like how did you start to think about, you know, to what could be next and how did you know, the next chapter, Brickyard, you know, come to together. Yeah, I mean, we knew, so we took a year off and, uh, you know, every entrepreneur you talk to, is, you know, when you step out of a company that you've been building, high growth business, you've been building for a long time, it's, it's, it's a super unnatural feeling. It's like, you know, when you wake up one day and you're not, operating at the like the speed and the tempo that you've been operating for for such a long time you just feel like a fish out of water i mean it feels like you're you stepped out of your car on the interstate i mean you're just not you're going it just feel it feels like you're going backwards um you know you wake up you eat breakfast you kind of mull around the house you, you know you ease down you know into the city you go to a yoga class at 10 a.m on a tuesday it's just like you're just not used to it. I'll put it that way. Um, and it, it's, it, it's, it is a very uncomfortable feeling. Uh, and so most entrepreneurs that go through an event like that, you're back at it pretty quick. Um, so never thought that we were going to be venture investors. Uh, we, we really had not been drawn to that side. My co-founder, Matt, and I, I think always, uh, we thought that we were going to start another company. Um, and uh, we started talking in our, the, the investors that wrote our first check, you know, 10 years prior back in, you know, 2012, um, everybody was kind of coming up for air. They had started a number of businesses themselves, had sold them. There were a lot of free agents. They were sort of like picking their head up and saying, all right, what are we doing next? And so like, it led us to this realization of, of like, Seeing the culture of startup founders change over the last 10 years from like 10 years ago, you just felt sorry for founders. It was just like there was no reason to raise venture capital and build a high, high growth company and other than because you wanted to build a really big business, you know, and now because of, you know, zero, zero interest rate environment for the last 10 years and the, just the, the sheer amount of capital has flown and, you know, flooded into venture capital, um, you know, capital was cheap and VC started throwing money around 
And, you know, diligence process started going out the window. And there was so much money that the venture capital firms, you know, started leaning into like making this whole thing sexy. Like the, the idea of making like a startup founder story sexy is the funniest thing to me. Like it's anything but sexy. It's just, it's it's pain and suffering and immense pressure. And yeah, they're like crazy high highs, but uh, they're way more lows than highs. And, it, you know, I think in an effort to get more founders in the market, you know, to have more opportunity to put money in a, in a high growth business, VC started glamorizing it. And, it. and by our math, like, you know, 2021, 22, the peak of the froth and venture where valuations were just like, you know, going straight to the moon. 90% of the founders that were building in that phase, like shouldn't have been there in the first place. Like they were in it for the wrong reasons. They, they, they wanted Forbes 30 under 30. You know, they, they wanted the vanity of it, the status of it. They wanted a pro athletes on their cap table. You know, it's like, but if you're an investor, you want to be putting money in, in the dogs, like the founders that are in it for the right reasons, period. And, and so we started Brickyard as like essentially our answer to what we believed was a broken industry uh, where we set up a, a series of filters, essentially, with, with um, how do we only get, how do we separate the wheat from the chaff? And how do we only get the founders with, with pure intention around what they're building? And uh, we're based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is by no means San Francisco. It's not New York. It's not a major tech hub. You know, we built Bellhop from here, uh, largely by, you know, having to ha really dial in a, 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 a deep recruiting function. Um, but once we recruited somebody here, it was like you brought them to an island and, you know, your retention was something you just never worried about. Right. And so there was something magic about building inside a mid-sized city where you're not dealing with the noise and distraction of uh, what other founders are dealing with in other places. You're not getting pulled out to networking events three nights a week. You're not invited to, you know, founder summits in Portugal and all this bullshit. Like you're building your company. And we bought this building and uh, we renovated into what we wish we had in the, in the early days, uh, which um, essentially serves as like a portfolio club. Uh, and we put in a gym, locker rooms, sauna, cold plunge, steam room, which sounds like, you know, like kind of soft. Uh, fact is, is, you know, in order to get funded by Brickyard, you have to leave wherever you are in the world with your co-founders, relocate here for a minimum of a year. But every one of our teams is coming here with under the handshake of like, we're coming here as a forcing function to get to a Series A. And we're focused on the trough of sorrow. So if Y Combinator is uh, the best institution in the world for getting teams their first raise, which they are, you know, Every team that comes out of YC falls into what's called the trough of sorrow. And it's like a law in startups. It's like you, you get to this like peak of disillusionment where you think you have all the answers. And then you find out really quickly you don't have any of the answers. And then you're like down at rock bottom for two or three years 
in this sort of knife fight towards product market fit. And then you get to the wiggles of false hope. And then hopefully you get to product market fit. And But no one had focused on the trough. And so that's what Brickyard's for us. Teams come here to hit rock bottom, go all in, and it's sort of a work culture that's pretty hardcore. Um, you know, we value extreme inputs around focus and hours. Um, the community of founders, everybody has sort of, you know, quote, burn the ships, come from, from other places to force themselves to just radically focus and, and, and work really hard. And uh, everybody here is a portfolio company at Brickyard. Uh, which we're investing out of a, our second fund, it's a $20 million fund now. Um, How many companies in total have you guys invested in? That's 28 companies in total uh, that we've backed over the last two years. So then, so then let, let me ask you this for Brickyard then. If you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Brickyard is fully realized, what does that world look like? We're branding a type of founder. We're backing... Founders, you know, founders, the decisioning that, that we make in teams, 90% of it has to do with, you know, it, staring into a founder's co-founding team's eyes and, and saying, you know, do you have what it takes to go to war for a decade? Because that's, that's what it takes. Um, 10% of it is like the box checks of venture. Like, yes, this one, you know, investment can return the whole fund. You know, this is a big market. Uh, they've got some unique insight. You, you know, those are like, table stakes. It's all about the founder. And so we are building, because we've set up this series of, of, of filters, we're building a, a community of junkyard dogs, like founders who are in it for the right reasons. They're not in it for the status. You know, every first meeting that we have with a team, it's like, this is not for everybody. It requires extreme sacrifice. You have to move here for at least a year, but you're really here for two or three years. You know, everyone here is putting in 70, 80, 90 hours a week. Um, we're, you know, it's, it's like half the, the time when, when we lay that out in the first two minutes with the founding team, it's like you see them like slump back in their chair and they, you know, they start to get defensive because you're sort of like, you know, threatening their, their current way of life. The other half are like leaning in and they're like, yes, this is exactly what we need. We need to focus and build. And and so we, that's like the first filter of all of this is this self-selection com component or like, how, how in are you, you know? And so three, four years from now, you know, Brickyard's going to be the most difficult organization in startups to get into. It's going to be the toughest community to get into. We're, I think we're going to be skimming the top teams uh, in pre-seed and seed, um, building pre-seed and seed companies from all over the world. Uh, and everybody is is going to be opting into this thing like the, we we aren't like marketers we really are we're staying under the radar and that it has to be an if you know you know kind of thing and uh it's turning into that and and now um, obviously we're talking about here about the future but i want to i want to talk about the past real quick you know with a lens of reflection so if i was to put you into a time machine and i bring you back in time to let's say 2011 where you were you know, put it together, bellhop. And you had the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I'd just say, uh, I don't think any, any first-time founder understands the sacrifice 
that building a company takes. If you're going to do it right, if you're going to make it, 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 it requires everything. You know, the five F's, faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. Like most people get three of those to focus on. Founders only get two of those, but one's already picked for you. So it's like your company and then one other thing. And that's all you get for like a decade. And so your personal relationships are going to be, you know, sacrificed. Your, your relationship with God is going to be sacrificed. Your relationship with, with fitness or your body is going to be set. Like something is going to give, right? And uh, I think the best advice that you can give an early stage founder is to, to level set on that expectation and say, this is what it is and not sugarcoat it. And you're doing, that's, you're doing a net good for humanity when you do that because you're keeping the founders out that shouldn't ever have been there in the first place, who would, would almost certainly suffer greatly in, in an environment like that. Like you want the founders that they know what they're signing up for. Uh, and so I would tell myself, um, it's going to be hard, but it's, it, it, it is worth it. Navy SEAL mentality. Eh? I love it, Cam. That's what, you know, kept, uh, kept hitting me when I was, when I was saying, listening here. And I, and I fully agree to that. So for the people that are listening, Cam, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to reach out? So if you're a team and you're interested in, in learning about Brickyard, our, our URL is justlaybrick.com. So check that out. Um, I'm on Twitter, Cam Doody, C-A-M-D-O-O-D-Y, uh, or LinkedIn. Uh, pretty active there as well. Amazing. Well, hey, Cam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Alejandra. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode. <laughs>